0: Hi and welcome to Authorised. My name's Kevin Hillier. This is the podcast where authors speak. We get their books, we read all about them, but sometimes we don't know much about them. Sometimes that's uh, long-time authors and sometimes, as uh, in the case today, first-time authors. Uh, today are going to meet Tana Douglas. I'll tell you a little more about Tana in a tick, but a little about our partners here in the uh, Authorised podcast and that, of course, is CSCG. Uh, they're finance experts. And they have uh, experts in the, all all the fields of finance that you need to know about. You might uh, have a, an issue with your superannuation at the moment. You want to know what's going on often uh, superannuation is an area where many of us don't know exactly what is going on. You do want to know what's going on with yours? Well, give them a call. Uh, they particularly are good in the uh, self-managed super fund area as we found out a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and that's what we've done on this podcast as well is introduce you to some of the people from CSCG. You can have a look at them as well by jumping on their website, cscg.com.au or giving them a call on 03 9974 833. That is the number and they will help you out. First-time author, uh, Tana Doug, Douglas is my feature today, the world's first female roadie. Yes, the old... One two, one two. The road crew, so much an important part of uh, of rock and roll, Uh, talked about a lot, uh, sung about a lot, and uh, and celebrated as they should be for the work that they do in uh, in making those uh, those memorable, you know, life changing concerts that we go to see. They're very much a part of it. And uh, Tana started uh, fairly uh, rough conditions in the early days in Australia, and uh, now lives in Los Angeles. Uh, So carved out a fantastic career for herself in the rock and roll industry. So let's find out all about it. The Book is called Loud. Is <laughs> uh, Tana Douglas? Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's
1: my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, when I saw the title of this uh, this book and the, and the small little screen, my immediate thought was that that little part out of Robin Williams' film uh, Good Morning Vietnam, where, it, where you know the, the bloke allegedly rings in, and says, "Play loud,
1: play loud." <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> no, coincidental that is not not planned
0: how um how is your hearing because the, the one thing I always worry about people who work in the rock and roll industry is that you'll be profoundly deaf by the time you're fifty.
1: you know I seem to be doing okay or, or I'm delusional with myself that I think I'm okay my hearing's not perfect, but considering I think I've done really quite well you know I think probably because you know for years I had headsets on calling cues for the show and all that sort of stuff, so I think that helps
0: yeah. Hey, uh, what was the motivation behind uh, writing the book? Well, what, what what kind of got you to the point where you went, you know what? Damn it, I'm going to sit down and do this.
1: Well, funnily enough, I got approached by somebody over here in Los Angeles who said he wanted to write a, a screenplay about my life, <laughs> which was like, "What? Who are you?" <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was really really peculiar. And then he explained to me that I'd been mentioned in several books, several biographies which I was totally unaware of. So, you know, we talked for a little bit, but then I sort of came to the conclusion that if anyone was going to tell the story, that I should actually tell it myself because I'd already lived it, so I probably had the best grip on it.
0: Yeah. Was it hard to sit down and go through? Well, I mean, and you started with the, you know, what was a pretty rough childhood. Was it hard to sit down and go through that?
1: You know, once I got that out of the way, it sort of made everything else pretty much a lot easier. And, you know, to me... (laughs) A bit like therapy, isn't it? I mean, you sort of purge. You know, I don't think I don't think anyone would have wanted to read the first draft or the second draft of that. It wasn't very nice. You know, you get to a point where you rewrite it and you rewrite it, and you actually get to say what you mean to say in the end. You know, whereas in the beginning you're just ranting and raving a little bit. I think, or at least I was. So, and you know, you say a lot of things that you never got a chance to say, but. You know, they're not really necessarily the things that you want to say. So, you know, that's that's how it evolved for me anyway.
0: That romantic notion of, you know, being a teenager, you know, a rebellious teenager and, and running off to join, well, either the circus or a rock and roll band is, is what uh, sort of was the, you know, the mythical thing when we were growing up as kids because we're a similar age. Uh, but it wasn't all, it was far from all beers and skittles at the, the early days, was it? It was rough.
1: <laughs> yeah. It was more like the Wild West version of a circuit. Yeah. You know what I mean? No accommodations, no, no washing facilities, no bathroom facilities. It was pretty rough out there, you know, you, and you just went from show to show to show. So it's, I think it was one of those that, you know, you get, you get in the lifestyle. It was a bit like a carny sort of lifestyle in, in itself. You know what I mean? you sort of get in it and you, you just don't know. I mean, if you're going to get off, you just have to jump off at some town somewhere and wave everyone goodbye and leave. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I just never, never really, really thought to do that. It was like, no, I'm, I'm here for the ride. Let's see where we go, you know.
0: With that lovely benefit of hindsight, I mean, do you, how many sliding door moments do you see in those early days where it just could have all gone really badly?
1: You know, I I think that's it with life in general, isn't it? You come to a lot of points where, you know, do you go left, do you go right, do you go straight ahead, you know? So, I mean, I I tended to go straight ahead, you know, I would just focus on something and, and, and keep going with it. There's there's a lot of those moments and, and you think, you know, See, if I'd gone left there, what would have happened? Well, you know, you don't know. You know, no, the bridge could have been washed out. Yeah. <laughs> so, is it any? Is it any better? You never, you'll never know. You but, know, so I'm, I'm kind of happy where I went.
0: Those early days in Australia, by geez, you, you got an education in a, in a very, you, you were fast tracked in, in education from Nimbin to the Cross and then to St Kilda in a house with ACDC. <laughs>
1: yeah, it wasn't. There weren't many club bed moments. <laughs> 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 It was all pretty much, you know, flying by the seat of your pants and, and, you know, getting out of whatever trouble you managed to get yourself into and hopefully escape unscathed, you know, and, you know, without anyone to sort of guide you along the way. You know, I think it's kind of astounding. I'm still breathing, actually. Uh, (laughs) It astounds me. So I'm sure it must astound other people as well.
0: Did you ever sense at any stage, uh, you know, the fact that you were the only female—did that ever was that ever a, a kind of a, a, not a not a sort of cape that you wore, but something that you you were acutely aware of—that you were forging new areas that that hadn't been done before.
1: Well, I, I didn't actually look at it that way. I looked at it in the way that if I didn't do a really good job, and if I didn't work harder and better than everyone around me, that they may decide that I shouldn't be there. So there was always that. There was like you know, being accepted into the boys' club, so to speak, you know. So, I mean, I got around that by becoming, acting like one of the boys. Whatever they did, I did twice as hard, you know, and that included drinking and probably swearing and all sorts of things. I became one of the boys, you know, and at at that point, they'd sort of adopted me and, you can't kick your kid's little, little kid sister, out the door, then, can you? You've <laughs> already he adopted her.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a lovely bit in the book where you say you dressed like the boys, you drank like the boys, you swore like the boys, and you worked as hard as the boys. Uh, was it? Was it uh, something that you thought as you were going along? Did you think, yeah, I'll just keep doing this, but eventually it's it's going to stop. It'll probably just, I'll probably just, you know, finish up doing something else.
1: Well, I never thought I would stop doing it by choice. The, I always thought that if I stopped working. And then I had to all of a sudden start looking for other jobs that would get me. So I just kept working. I'd go straight from one tour to the next tour to the next tour. I mean, I'd have a tour booked before I finished the one I was on. And I just figured that if I kept moving, then I'd be good. You know what I mean? That was my logic. Just stay in the game, keep moving, keep your face there, be present all the time, and they won't sort of forget about you or have someone else come and take your place.
0: you know? Yeah, Bill Joseph and Michael Browning. I think uh, you, you used the term downtime. They said uh, don't have any downtime.
1: Yeah, that was Bill. Yeah, that was that was when I first realized because I mean I, I didn't know. You know, I, I started. I got picked up by this band in Sydney. They asked me to come back to Melbourne to work for them. So I just sort of I, I always lived in the moment. You know, it didn't occur to me to plan like two months ahead or three months ahead. Or I mean, I still can't. You know, when people say to me, "Oh, you know, we're going to." Um, you know, we're, we're going to Taiwan in, in a year and a half. Do you want to come? I look at them like they're crazy. It's <laughs> like, a year and a half? How on earth do you know? How could you think that way? <laughs> yeah. my, my common response is always, I could be hit by a bus by then. Talk to me like a year and a half from now. <laughs> that,
0: that's sort of half the rush, isn't it? Half the rush is that you don't know what you're going to be doing in three months' time because you can be on the road with Iggy Pop and David Bowie in March and by June you're, you're on the road with Status Quo doing something totally different.
1: In a different country, exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and that, that's what enticed me, you know. I mean, I, I love the fact that, you know, you go to sleep and wake up in another country, you know, and everyone's speaking a different language, you know. I mean, that to me was just amazing, you know, and, and different people, you know. But, but you had you call people around you close, you know, the rest of the crew. You grow sort of affinities with certain people and you go from one tour to the next with them. So you've got this small little pot of people that you've been working with over the years for years you
0: know, and it becomes very close, very close. ACDC, I mean, you mentioned Fox there, which was the band you were talking about, You started working with in, in Sydney and then uh, they came to Melbourne and then that's when that's when you finished up uh, going to uh, East St Kilda and, and living in a house with ACDC. Just take us through that little exercise because they were, they were uh, I think, recording High Voltage at the time, weren't they, their first album?
1: Yeah, they just started recording and they were down in Melbourne. they just signed with Michael Browning and Bill Joseph. So the deal was that they'd become a Melbourne band because that's where Bill and Michael were based out of. So they came down, they got the house, they checked out the house, and went, yeah, yeah, this will be cool. And they were leaving to go back, I think, in the next day or two, back to Sydney into the studio at Albert's with uh, George and Harry. So the timing just happened to fall really well. That, you know, Bill said, you know, we'd go in on Mondays to pick up our worksheets for the week. And Bill called me aside and said, you know, you want to try this different band. And so, you know, he introduced me to Michael Browning. He took me over to the house. The house was, you know, a little worse worn than most on the street, you know, but I mean, I wasn't there to look at the house. I wanted to see what was going on inside. So they took me in. And, you know, I walked into the room and there was this group of, you know, five people just standing there, and, and I watched Michael as he went over and, you know, started talking to them, then he calls me over, you know, and there was this energy in that room that you just couldn't, you could taste it, you know, yeah. you could feel it, you could taste it, and it's like, what is going on here? <laughs> and it was weird, because there were two distinct different age groups, you know, so I was confused, you know, because Malcolm and Angus were closer to my age, but then Bond. George and Harry are all similar ages, you know what I mean? So I'm like, what is going on here, you know? And then Brother George took the lead and, you know, he introduced me to everyone, starting with Malcolm and Angus, then Bond chirped in. Then I got the the story of what was going on in the room, you know, and George and Harry were producing and obviously George's big brother. And it wasn't until later that day that they even picked up instruments and started playing anything, you know, and writing. They were sitting down, they were still writing and working on pieces for when they went back in the studio the next day, you know? So it was fascinating. It was, but I was in. You know, I said, "Count me in. Whatever it is, <laughs> I'm
0: in." It was that strong. The uh, the the pull of music and the, and the attraction of the rock and roll industry. I mean, and uh, often people who are, are, are on the periphery, are, are frustrated musicians want to be musicians themselves. Did you go through that anxiety?
1: Wanting to be a musician? Yeah. No. No.
0: No. Yeah.
1: No. 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 no I'm 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 not one for being in front of the camera, actually. Yeah. <laughs> this is all a bit nerve-wracking for me. <laughs> but, um, I mean, there was one time when I got up and sang with, with ACDC playing. We, we were in Adelaide, and they, they, they were at a barbecue, and I think it was at Bond's ex-wife's place. And they said, come on, get up. And they were going to play a Janis Joplin song because i was a Janis Joplin nut. And, and for some reason, I don't know, I must have been drunk because I said yes. <laughs> oh, wow. But I got up there for about a minute. I got up there for about a minute and then just ran away and went, oh, no, this is such a bad idea. <laughs> so that was my only brush, apart from a stint in The Three Little Maids, at, you know, the Mikado at school. Yeah. That was it. So no, no, I'm not one for in front of the, the scenes,
0: no. <laughs> you would have seen a lot who wanted to be, though.
1: You know, there is, but also there's some very talented road crew people, you know, I mean, for example, you know, I mean, the band, you know, used to be Dylan's backing band and then they took off on their own, you know, um, the police's road crew, they'd get up and play the set and you'd think it was the police playing it. Different crews from all over the world that are just really, really good musicians, but um, for whatever reason, they've chosen to be road crew, you know, Yeah. so there's, But there's a lot that fill in, you know, they'll jump up, you know, if one of the members is sick or something, the road crew will jump in, play the set, and then load the truck afterwards, you know, <laughs> so it's kind of
0: fascinating to see when it happens. Yeah, it, it's been a tough uh, 12 months or so for, uh, for people involved in the music industry and none more so than the road crew because they don't get royalty checks, they don't get all the other things that come with, uh, you know, having a, having a, a record and a, a record deal and a management deal and all those things, there's no residuals come in uh, from the gig you did 20 years ago at, uh, you know, the Odeon Theatre in London.
1: No, there's there's nothing like that. And, you know, there's no medical insurance. There's there's a lot of things that, that don't exist. Yeah. And it is an incredibly hard time right now. And it has been over 12 months now since this started. And I I don't see it ending anytime soon. So, you know, there's organizations popping up around the world that really need support from all everybody, you know, because the crew are always the first one that go in. And, you know, we give our time, you know, whether it's live aid or you know, concert for Bangladesh or, we, you know, We Are The World, whatever it is, you know, we always work for free. We never ask for money. We always turn up. And it's not just the time of the show, you know, it's all the preparation in, up, up ahead of the game, you know, which can be weeks, you know, and afterwards, you know, putting everything, you know, dismantling everything, putting it all back and preparing it then for something else, you know. So there's weeks and weeks of work that's only seen in one, you know, one or two or three-hour benefit concert that we do for free, yeah. you know. So now's the time that they really need supporting, you know. So there's different organisations, you know, in Australia, there's the Support Act, which is just a wonderful organisation, and Crew Care, both two great organisations, and they do everything from mental health assistance to financial medical assistance. So, you know, kudos to them.
0: And it can be a fairly thankless task at times, uh, being part of a row crew of a rock band, can't it? It <laughs> sure
1: can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's very little glory involved, so, you know, and I think that's why everyone likes to party so much, because it's like, oh, finally we get to do something fun. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so we do that as we do that as hard as we do the work, you know, because the work is hard, you know, and it's long and it's tiring. And you know, I, I mean, I was I was on a call the other day, you know, and people were talking about you know different body ailments that they've got from touring over the years, whether it's like compressed discs in their back or their feet, you know, from standing on you know, cement or even ice rinks or whatever for years in and out, you know. And it's just amazing that the, the abuse that your body goes through, jumping off stages, you know. Yeah. I mean, you're constantly jumping on and off stages, you know. You can't, oh, let me just go and find the staircase and go there and then walk all the way around a 40-foot stage to go in the opposite direction. No, that doesn't happen. It's like, come here quick, boom, everyone jumps, you know. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard work.
0: Um, you've worked with, the uh, I mean, you've worked with all the big names. You really have. It's its quite staggering, the uh, the people that you've worked with over the years. Obviously, some are more like bosses and, and some are more like people that you kind of have a relationship with.
1: Absolutely, yeah. You know, it's, it's like a little microchism of, of the world, you know. Some people, you know, you get on with, you have an affinity to, you know, you share common interests, you common likes, you know, and, and you know, sense of humour is always a great thing door opener, you know, you have the same sense of humor you're in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> God knows we need them out there. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Sense of humor is a strong thing. But, yeah, you know, and, and you know, the, the people I gravitated towards, you know, were usually, you know, the the cerebral sort of ones, you know, ones I could have a deep conversation with, you know, and sit down and chat about anything apart from music, you know, as well as music, but usually other things found, you know, I was quite interested in.
0: Yeah. So, inter-
1: yeah, it depends on the individual.
0: Yeah, you seem to have a wonderful affinity just reading the book with, with uh, the members of Status Quo, in particular, unfortunately, uh, the, the late Richard Parfitt. Oh, Rick was such
1: a darling. Yeah, absolutely. You know, those boys were just so good to me, you know. I mean, I was still really young when I started with them. I did a first tour in Australia before I left the country. Then after, I'd moved to England, which was, you know, a year, within a year later. You know, I built their lighting rig for them and then, you know, went out on tours for like three years and then when they took a year off I started managing their lighting rig for them. So yeah, we have a long history and it was it was an perfect time to be with them as well because they were at their peak. They were all happy. They were you know, they were just everything was in the right place. You know what I mean? It was just perfect time to be with them.
0: Yeah. Was it different when uh, I mean when you're working for female uh, bosses uh, like the Quattros and the Patty Smiths and that of the world? Was was there a different dynamic uh, because you're a female?
1: Um, sometimes it depends on the person, you know. I mean, Susie was just kind of you know really friendly person, you know, and, I, and she got a she got a real hoot out of having another girl there, you know. is a little more serious a person, you know. She's you know all about the music and her art and that sort of thing, so. And I didn't know a lot about Patty Smith at the time, you know, so I didn't really get close. I got funny enough close with her husband, It sounds a little bizarre. <laughs> but, uh, but we toured together, which was, you know, Fred Sonic Smith from MC5 fame. He was in uh, Iggy's band on the Iggy Pop tour I did. So that's I kind of learned more about Patty through Fred, you know, which was, which was interesting. So, but uh, he was a wonderful person and, you know, and he spoke really highly of Patty, obviously. And, um, you know, so he had some good stories and, and it was just nice, you know, listening to their relationship. You know, it was a really, really close, caring relationship that they had, you know, and it was kind of inspiring to me. It was like, Oh, well maybe there's hope for me, yet. Yeah.
0: <laughs> was uh, was Iggy Pop and David <laughs> Bowie wasn't. Is is Ziggy Pop and David Bowie the weirdest <laughs> kind of combination that you've you've worked with over the years?
1: But <sighs> the weirdest combination. Well, do you know what
0: I mean by weird? The most the most uh, unpredictable, I guess, combination of, uh, of human beings.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I was working with Iggy. Um, you know, Bowie just finally turned up, you know. I mean, he'd been missing in action for the whole tour. I mean, he wasn't meant to be on the tour, and that was, you know, part of the problem. Because, you know, they'd worked together closely over the two years prior to that, and then they had a bit of a falling out. And so Iggy was out on his own, and he was, you know when the tour was booked, he thought that David was going to be with him, I guess. The dynamics between the two was really quite interesting because they are very different people, very different people, but obviously they write really well for each other. Yeah. You know, because they've had some great hits from that, you know, that um, alignment. So they were an odd couple, I thought, but they didn't seem to think so. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How do female fans uh, react to you? Because that that's another dynamic that would have been interesting.
1: Yeah. It, like earlier on, When we were doing like pub gigs and when you're up close and personal with the audience and that sort of stuff, it was a little rougher, you know, because they see you as some sort of gatekeeper or something where I was just trying to do my job, you know, I just didn't have time to stop and answer all their questions and sneak them backstage and do all that sort of stuff. That's not why I was there, you know, I was there to work. So that was a bit rough, you know, so... But as, you, as the shows get bigger and bigger, you get – and, you know, over the years as well, there's better security. Everyone's got identification, you know, that they don't have a pass, they don't get close, you know, all of those things. So it changed over the years as the industry grew, you know. But um, you always have fans sneaking around and finding a way backstage and finding a way into the hotel and, you know, they're quite – Quite
0: ingenious, some of them. <laughs> Tony, you mentioned uh, that it was originally kind of uh, the the reason that you've sat down and wrote this was someone approached you to do a, a movie. Is, is this going to be turned into a movie? I don't know.
1: <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. It'll be exciting,
0: though, wouldn't it? Yeah, no, I think it'd be very exciting. I mean, the strip line on the book is you know the world's first roadie female roadie. Is, is it, it's a badge of a badge of pride for you? As, as I think it should be.
1: You know, it is. Considering that wasn't the goal and and that wasn't, you know, my my mantra that kept me going, but over the last, say, decade, it's become quite a thing, which is why the book came around, because with more and more females entering into the industry, you know, they're looking for mentors, they're looking for people who they can look up to, and fortunately I've become one of those people. So, you know, it's quite quite an honour, I think.
0: What do you say to uh, aspiring uh, people, uh, people who aspire to be a part of road crew, whether it's in the sound or the lighting or whatever. What do you what do you say, Tom?
1: Well, you know, male or female, you have to fit in. Yep. You know, you basically, what you're doing is you're taking on a job where you're part of the crew. And, and it's the real integral part of that is everyone relies on the other person. So if you can't be relied upon and you're not prepared to consider your workmates, and how what you're doing affects them and how what they're doing affects you, then you're probably in the wrong place because you're you're gonna find that we're living inside each other's pockets pretty much, you know? And if you can't do that and you can't get along with a bunch of like incredibly diversified different people, you're probably in the wrong field. But, you know, if you can get over all of that and you're prepared to work hard and do long hours and and come to the realisation that it isn't a glory-filled job, mm. <laughs> but it is a job that you, you do you do love, you know, and you come to love it and it gets in your blood. So be careful. Don't yeah. stay too long unless you want to. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because otherwise, it'll be too late. Look at me. Yeah. What
0: What do you want to do in 2021? Do you, I mean, uh, on what, and what can you do in 2021?
1: Well, I mean, touring-wise, work-wise, production-wise, I don't think there's going to be anything anyone can do in 2021. I'd be surprised. I mean, you know, I mean, I've got my fingers crossed for a secret hope that, you know, August, hopefully, maybe some shows will start up. Yeah. But, you know, right now, I don't, I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think it's going to happen. So I'm focusing on, you know, the, the writing. So I'm, I'm still writing, doing a lot of that. I'm finishing a certificate program at UCLA, which is creative writing, which is something that I'm really proud of. And you know, there's discussions to see, you know, what we can do with the book and where where we can take it.
0: Oh, the book's got movie written all over it. <laughs> who would you who do who do you want to play you in the movie? Who who plays who plays Tanner in the movie?
1: I have no idea. I'm too.
0: <laughs> I,
1: I, I, I'm too. And that's just too weird a question for me to actually even think of someone. You know, people throw names at me all the time, and I'm, I just giggle and I can't even. I can't even go
0: there. No. <laughs> hey, thank you so I can't go there. Thank you so much for your time. I've got to ask you, the song that everyone talks about, the the Road Crew, the Loadout, Jackson Brown song, do you like that song or do you, when you hear it, go, oh, God, I wish they wouldn't play this?
1: No, you know, when the song came out, it was really, oh, yay, it was like the first acknowledgement we'd ever gotten. Yep. So it was great. But then if you actually listen to the song, what he did was he used to play it last at live shows. And it used to go on and on (laughs) and on. (laughs) And if if you're actually on that crew, it's like, oh, shut up and get off. We've got trucks to load. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Someone drag him off for Christ's sake. But at the time, it was a real honour. So
0: yeah, nice one, Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> Tana, thanks so much for your time. Congratulations on the book and on your career. It's a, it's a you know, it's a groundbreaking career, and uh, you've you've done it really well. And all the best of luck for the future.
1: Thank you so much.
0: It's a great story. It's a terrific read uh, and it's it's chock full of great stories about uh, some of the biggest names in the music industry and uh, Tana's part in their journey, wherever that has uh, taken place and wherever that has been. It's uh, It really is a terrific story. My thanks to ABC Books for making uh, Tana available and my thanks to Tana for her time. Uh, the book is called, as I said loud, A Life in Rock and Roll by the World's First female roadie. And my thanks also to CSCG, our partners in this authorised podcast. Whether it's accounting, taxation, uh, whatever it is you want to talk about, superannuation, whether it's borrowing or lending, uh, they are up for a chat about your financial situation and how they can help you. Zero three double nine seven that is the number. Check out uh, the faces behind CSCG. You can see them there on the website cscg.com.au and I'm sure that uh, you'll, uh, you'll form a terrific partnership with them if you get getting in touch with them zero three double nine seven four eight triple three. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of Authorised. Don't forget, uh, plenty more of our previous episodes are available with uh, great authors like uh, William McGinnis. Uh, Jeff Apter talks about the uh, the George Young uh, days in the Easy Beats in our very first episode of the Authorised Podcast. Uh, Monica McInerney talks about the uh, the Godmothers, her book. Peter Fitzsimons. We've got them all there for you to have a listen to on the Authorised Podcast. Hope you enjoyed this one. Till the next time, I'm Kevin Hillier. Take care of yourself.